0: Two Lord's Days ago, we were in Thessalonica with the Apostle Paul and Silas. Or was it Thessalonica? It's Thessalonica. And we looked at the formation or the foundation of the church that existed in Thessalonica and how that church got started. We observed three things about the Apostle Paul, and we'll just review them quickly because due to time, well actually due to lunch, we had to cut that sermon short, and so you're getting part two today of what would have been a two and a half hour sermon We observed of the Apostle Paul his strategy. He went into commercial cities, he went into capital cities where he planted churches, and he went into the synagogues there. We also observed how the Apostle Paul used his skill. For three Sabbaths in the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews, question and answer, and he debated with them and and laid out his evidences that the Christ had to suffer, that the Christ had to rise again, and that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament predictions regarding the Christ, And therefore, this Jesus is the Christ. That was the skill with which the Apostle Paul argued with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue. And then we looked at the success that the Lord granted to Paul and to Silas. As some of the Jews believed, a good number of the God-fearing Greeks believed, and a few of the leading or prominent women in the city believed. And if we had just left at the end of chapter 4, or if Luke had not given us verses sorry, if we had just stopped at the end of verse 4 and Luke had not given us verses 5 through 9, you and I might think that everything was great in Thessalonica and that there were no problems and there was nothing but success. And then we would read First and Second Thessalonians and we would read about all of this suffering and all of this affliction that the church was going through. You know, we don't get the bulk of our understanding about the Thessalonican church from the book of Acts chapter 17. We get the bulk of our understanding about the character and the nature of that church from the epistles, the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to them, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. And I encouraged you last time we were together in the book of Acts to read through those two epistles, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, and to get a flavor for the things that the Apostle Paul is talking about and his spirit and his attitude and his love for that church. And I hope that you did that. If you did that, you will have noticed two things that sort of stand out. And these two things really seem to not go together at all, kind of like water and oil. They just don't seem to mix from our perspective. The first thing you would have noticed about the church in Thessalonica is how how, how it was an exemplary church in almost every respect. The Apostle Paul writes to them and he says to them, "...we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers." constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. They were an exemplary church in their witness, in their evangelism, in their spreading of the Gospel. Their faith was increasing more and more. They were increasing in their brotherly love for one another, in their love for Christ, in their steadfastness, in their perseverance. The Apostle Paul says, the Word of the Lord has sounded forth not only from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't even need to say anything. The Apostle says everybody's talking about your faith. They're talking about how radical of a transformation the Gospel made in your lives, how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Everybody's talking about you guys. Exemplary church. Just a few months later when he writes 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says your faith has been greatly enlarged. Your brotherly love continues to abound more and more. And we speak with pride about you amongst all the other churches. Exemplary in every respect. That's not to say that the church was perfect, friends. There are no perfect churches. Even this church is not perfect, believe it or not. Every church has its shortcomings and its failings. And the Apostle Paul addressed some of those in in the epistles. But even with the little blemishes and the warts that that church had and the issues that they had to deal with, In almost every respect, they were an example to everybody. That's the first thing you notice about the church is their exemplary status, an example to all of the other churches, all of the other believers. But then you notice something else that seems to not go well with that, their suffering and their affliction. The suffering and the affliction that they were undergoing is mentioned in both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul writes those two epistles is to encourage them and to comfort them in their suffering and their affliction. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, After we had suffered at Philippi, as you know, we came to you and we preached to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. What opposition is the Apostle Paul talking about? Well, we read about it in Acts chapter 17. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14, You became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea just as you suffered the same kind of afflictions from the hands of your own countrymen that they suffered from the Jews. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 4. The Apostle Paul was so concerned about their affliction that he sent Timothy to them to see how they were doing. And Timothy brought back a glowing report. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 and through 4. Paul says, We sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker in the Gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Destined for affliction. What a concept that is, huh? God has destined you to be afflicted. And if you want to be destined to something, affliction is not likely something that you would choose. But Paul says we were destined for this. Indeed, he says, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, just as you know. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The affliction was still going on. The Apostle Paul writes, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, of your perseverance in the faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Exemplary church, And a suffering church. Do those go together in your mind? We might expect the apostle Paul to write to them and say, I understand that you're suffering. I understand that you're being afflicted, but don't let that influence your witness. Don't that let that make you cower into a corner where you're quiet about your faith. Don't make that cause you to lack faith and trust in God. In the midst of all of it, we might expect the Apostle Paul to say, look, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Cowboy up! So you're suffering. Don't let that make you cower. It doesn't have to do that. Not to Thessalonians. You're suffering. You're afflicted. You're an exemplary church. The suffering and the affliction serve to do really one primary thing, and that's to keep the church healthy, keep it vibrant, and keep it evangelizing. And then Paul says, Your faith is spoken of by everybody. And their suffering was spoken of. Their testimony was clear, their testimony was convincing, convincing, their testimony was concise, and their testimony was persecuted. It seems like a paradox, doesn't it? But they were suffering. And we get a look at how and when and why that suffering started when we go back to Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick it up in verse 5, so have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 17. Verse 5. After looking at Paul's strategy, at his skill, and at the success, and how many people believed, verse 5 says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. I want you to notice two things about the affliction that this church endured. The first thing is notice the source of the affliction. Who did it come from? Verse 5, but the Jews, being jealous went to the marketplace and hired some thugs. The opposition that the Apostle Paul faced was from the Jews. We've noticed that pattern as we've gone through the book of Acts, haven't we? In Jerusalem, who was it that opposed Peter and James and John and the rest of the Apostles? The Jews. Who was it that opposed Stephen and stoned Stephen? The Jews. Who was it that sought to kill Paul after he was converted to faith in chapter 9? The Jews. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul went to Pisidian Antioch. And there he entered the synagogue twice, and the the leaders of that synagogue, being filled with jealousy, rose up and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. Until Paul finally said, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles rejoiced and believed. Then after they left Pisidian Antioch, they went to Iconium, and guess what happened? The Jews from Antioch came to Iconium, stirred up the minds of the brethren, or the, the crowds against the people. So Paul left Iconium and went to Lystra. And the Jews from Antioch and Iconium followed Paul to Lystra where they riled up the crowd against him, stoned him, drug him outside the city and left him for dead. It wasn't Gentiles by and large who opposed Paul and caused him so much heartache. It was his own countrymen. They hated him. They hunted him. They hounded him. They followed him from city to city opposing his message, opposing his gospel, blaspheming the Savior. They did everything they could to contradict him, to blaspheme Paul, to slander his name, to steal his converts, to cause him problems. It was the Jews, not the Gentiles. And in spite of being the object of their disdain, their hatred, their opposition, in spite of being the target and the one that they wanted to kill from day one of his salvation, you ever notice the Apostle Paul's attitude toward the Jews? He never stopped loving them. His own countrymen. Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ that I have great sorrow. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, but I wish that I myself could be accursed from Christ, separated for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Love the Jews. These are the people who caused him so much emotional and physical pain. But Paul says, I long for their salvation. Friends, I ask you this. Do you love people who cause you pain that way? Do you love people who oppose you and the Gospel to that degree? That you would actually wish upon them something good even at your own expense? That's the love with which the Apostle Paul loved his countrymen. Maybe it's true that the Apostle Paul could just sympathize with them a little bit because it's easy for us to forget that there was a time when the Apostle Paul, as a Jew, being zealous for Judaism caused Christians pain, right? He knew what that was like. He oversaw a stoning. That of Stephen. He stood by while Stephen's blood was being shed and he held coats after he had basically masterminded that whole stoning. And he knew what it was to be on that side. And in spite of all of the pain, the Apostle Paul could say, they've caused me all of that, but I still love them. What was the motive behind it? The people behind it, it was the Jews in the synagogue who hated him. The motive is that of jealousy, and we've seen that come up again and again in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, the people held all of the Apostle's in high regard and they honored them and they stood in awe of them especially after the incident with Ananias and Sapphira they respected the apostles but Acts chapter 5 says that when the Sadducees and the high priests and the religious leaders saw how the people loved the apostles they became jealous and they seized Peter and John and threw them in the public jail jealousy Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul showed up in Pisidian Antioch and the one Sabbath he reasoned with the Jews and they said to him after that service, come back next Sabbath. And we want to hear these things again. So Paul and Barnabas showed up that next Sabbath and Luke says the whole city turned out to hear what they were saying. The synagogue was packed. The crowd was there, standing room only. And the Jews saw this and what happened? They were filled with jealousy. We can't get a crowd like that. The city doesn't turn out to hear us preach like that, and everybody's here. And they were jealous of their success, and so they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. Jealousy is one of the most base, one of the most reprobate of motives because of the pride that is involved. At the heart of jealousy is pride. When you are jealous of the success of another ministry or another church or another person, be it in your business or in ministry, it is pride that is at the heart of it. What you really want is what they have, and you think that you deserve the same kind of blessing that they've received. At the heart of their opposition was jealousy, and at the heart of their jealousy is a heart of pride. It is the most base, it is the most reprobate, it is the most reprehensible possible motive. And that's what stirred them up to oppose the gospel. They hated the gospel, they hated Paul, They hated his ministry. They hated his message. Why? Well, Paul was having success amongst them, wasn't he? Verse 4 of chapter 17 says, Some of the Jews believed. There were a a number of Jews who in the synagogue believed Paul and were joined to him. There was a good number of God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue who believed and a number of prominent women. So it's not only the number of people who are joining Paul and being converted, they're viewing Paul as a sheep-stealer. He comes into our synagogues and people leave the synagogue after him. So they hate him for that reason. And they're jealous of the success that he can have, not only in drawing a crowd, but in turning converts over to Christ. But they were also jealous for this reason. A number of people who believed in Thessalonica were leading women. Why does Luke tell us that? Because it explains 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, sorry, chapter 2, where Paul says, We didn't covet your gold. We didn't come to you with a motive of greed, a pretense for greed. We worked with our own hands to provide for our own needs. Some people in Thessalonica were saying he's after your money. That's why he led you to Christ. Paul's after your coins. There was a number of leading, that is prominent women, wives of business leaders and politicians in the city who had attended the synagogue because it was the fashionable thing to do. And in going to the synagogue, they heard Paul, they heard of Christ, they believed, and they followed after Paul. And when they left the synagogue, they left took not only their presence in the synagogue, but also their money. That would make them jealous. All of the wealthy people are leaving our church and going after so-and-so. That has to stop. They have to do something to make that come to a screeching halt. So what do you do when you're jealous? And what do you do when you want to shut down a ministry? Well, you lie about somebody, but if you can't do it yourself, you go to the marketplace, which is what they did, and you hire some thugs. Some thugs for hire. They go to the marketplace where... Worthless or wicked men would have been milling about who would be able to be hired for doing, to do almost anything. And so the Jews go to the marketplace, they find these wicked men, and they hire them to sort of form a mob and bring the people against Paul and Silas. Now what's interesting or ironic about this is that these Jews would have disdained these very wicked men. They're layabouts. They're lazy. They're wicked. And the Jews who were the rulers of the synagogue would have disdained them, disliked them, wanted nothing to do with them. But the Apostle Paul and his success makes for some interesting bedfellows. So the Jews lay aside all of the disdain that they might have for them, men, and they employ them. They go down to the marketplace, and they employ these wicked men, and these wicked men then turn the city really upside down. They form a mob or a riot, chapter, or verse 6, sorry, verse 5 says, they set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So who's behind it? Who's the source behind the suffering in the church of Thessalonica? The Jews. What was their motive? Jealousy. So they hire some wicked men, form a mob, and go after Paul and Silas. Second thing I want you to notice is the slander that's involved in this affliction. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities and shouting, and then he goes into the accusations. They couldn't find Paul and Silas. Now, I don't know if that's because Paul and Silas could see a mob forming, and they had learned the lesson from Philippi. Do you remember what happened in Philippi? Beaten, right? Maybe the apostle Paul and Silas just saw shades of Philippi coming their way, and they said, we're leaving. Now they go to the house of Jason I think because the Apostle Paul was likely staying with Jason just like he stayed with Lydia in Acts chapter 16. He was staying at the house of Lydia. They're looking for Paul. Where do they go? They go to Jason's house. Now we don't know anything about Jason other than that's his name. There's a Jason that's mentioned in the book of Romans. It may be that he's the same Jason here and that Paul picked him up from Thessalonica and took him with him. There's a Jason that is a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. We would assume that Theophilus, the recipient of the book of Acts knew who this Jason was, but he was housing the apostle Paul. Paul and Silas were staying in his house, and when they're looking for Paul, they go to the house of Jason, and Paul and Silas are gone. Maybe because they saw another Philippi forming, and they took off, or it may be that they just are not there by the providence of God. Thessalonica is a city of 250,000 people. It's easy to get lost in that, isn't it? It's easy to make your just sort of blend into the walls, when especially when they don't have the Internet or the billboards to put your face on and things like that. He just got lost. But by God's providence, the Apostle Paul was not there. And so they grabbed the next best thing. Jason. Why did they do this? I think there's two reasons. First of all, I think they're trying to flush out the Apostle Paul. If they can make an innocent person suffer and Paul's in hiding and he knows about it, Paul would likely come rushing out to stop the whole thing. And if they're trying to flush him out from hiding, they would grab Jason, bring him down to the authorities and say, well, we'll beat him in Paul's place. We're going to beat him or torture him or make him pay and maybe Paul, when he hears about it, will come out. That's kind of what happens in Acts chapter 19 when they get to Ephesus. The stadium is in an uproar and everybody's shouting and they drag out Aristarchus and Paul's traveling companions and they're, they're going to inflict pain on these guys. And Paul wants to rush into the stadium and the disciples have to pull him back. Stay out of there. They're after Paul. But they're going to flush Paul out using somebody else. I think the same thing is going on here with Jason. But there's a second reason that they bring Jason into all of this and drag him and other brethren before the city authorities. And it's this. You have to satiate the mob. You've got everybody whipped up into a frenzy. You've got everybody mad. Everybody is sort of at peak emotional fervor. And this whole fomenting mob is after Paul and Silas. And you can't just say, well, friends, we couldn't find them. So I'll tell you what. Let's meet back here tomorrow at noon and we'll try this again. Your crowd's not going to show up. they got to do something. So they, they grab Jason. They bring him down, I think, in hopes to sort of keep the mob attitude going. They bring Jason before the authorities and they bring three accusations against him. And I want you to notice these three, beginning in verse 6. Number one, these men have upset the world and have come here also. That's the first accusation. Number two, Jason has welcomed them And number three, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Let's just take each one of those three accusations individually. First, these men have upset the world. Friends, that's not a compliment. Some people take that as a compliment. Man, your preaching just turns everything upside down. That's not what they're saying about Paul and Silas. They're not saying you have revolutionized things for the better. You have turned the world upside down for Christ. Wow, what a great thing. That's not what they're accusing them of. They're accusing them of... Starting civil unrest and disorder. They're turning the whole kingdom upside down. It's a bad thing. These people are stirring up the crowds, Paul and Silas. These men are turning things on its head. Now friends, there is a sense in which the gospel does turn things upside down. Do you realize that? Ever since the fall, ever since Adam plunged our entire race into perdition and sin, the world has been upside down. Once there was perfection and beauty, now there is imperfection and imbeauty, Injustice and unrighteousness and unholiness reigned the day. Nothing is as it should be. There is death and disease and sin and wickedness all over the place. The world is completely upside down. And in comes the gospel, which really turns the world right side up. So now men, rather than being enemies of God, can be reconciled to God. Rather than being enemies of God, we're made sons. We move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the control of Satan to the control of God, from self to others, from glorifying self to glorifying the Lord, from self where selfishness once reigned, selflessness now reigns supreme, from hatred to love. And the world looks at that and they says, that's upside down. But in reality, who is it that's upside down? The world is upside down. The Gospel turns everything right side up. But listen, if you're an unbeliever, and you're in the world, and you're upside down, and the world is upside down, the world looks right side up. Until you find somebody who's been turned right side up, and then they look upside down. Do you understand that? That's how the world looks at us. That's why they say, you're weird. You understand things that are a mystery to us. You have priorities in your life that aren't even on our radar screen. You live for things that are unseen. You desire after things that to us are not even desirable. And they look at the Christian and say, that's backwards. And the Christian has to say, you're backwards. We're right side up. You're upside down. They said these men are turning our world upside down. They meant it really in those two senses. These men are making believers out of people and these people are backwards. They don't live for the same things that we live for once. That's the first accusation. These men are turning the world upside down. They're creating civil unrest, civil disorder. Friends, is that not the pot calling the kettle black? It was they who hired the wicked men, who started the mob, who created the riot, who stormed the house of Jason, who drug him before the people and the civil authorities, and then they point at the Apostle Paul and say, he started it like a bunch of children. This is the pot calling the kettle black. These men are guilty of turning the world upside down. And they're the ones that set the city in an uproar. Before Paul and, before the wicked men were hired by these Jews, there was no riot. There was no disturbance. The Apostle Paul wasn't doing any of that. And here's the irony of the whole thing. This accusation is coming from Jews, and they hated Caesar and his administration. They hated him. They wanted their freedom. They didn't like Pilate ruling over them. They didn't like Roman officials and Roman administrators on their turf. They wanted their freedom. And there was sedition. This is the biggest bunch of revolutionary, anarchist, seditionist, unsubmissive, rebellious bunch of people you can possibly imagine. And what do they say of Paul? He's turning things upside down. You have to jump on him to keep things in order. If Paul had come to Thessalonica and tried to gain a crowd to overthrow Rome, these people would have joined him. But he wasn't doing that. And so they say, well, he's trying to overthrow Rome. What a lie. Look at the second accusation. Jason has welcomed them. This is an attempt to implicate Jason in the whole thing. He's harboring criminals. He's harboring men who are leading people toward overthrowing Rome. Now, if that had been true, those people would have loved Jason. But it wasn't true. So they hated Jason and accused him of harboring criminals. The third accusation is geared toward not only Jason and not only Paul, but all the brethren Look at what they said, they all, that is all the brethren, all these Christians, Jason, uh, Paul, Silas, all of them act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now what's the decree of Caesar? The decree of Caesar was, you shall have no gods before Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. Caesar is King. And it was a capital crime to promote or to proclaim or to advance Any other king but Caesar. And the Jews had been guilty of trying to overthrow Caesar, which is why Caesar kicked the Jews out of Rome in 49 A.D. because there was so much insurrection. And so the decree of Caesar was, you shall have no gods before Caesar. Well, they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king, Jesus. Now, is that true? Were Paul and Silas saying that there was another king, Jesus? You know, friends, there's enough truth to that just to twist. That's all the truth that slander has to have behind it. Just enough truth to twist. And so that's what they do. They're promoting another king. You see, that's true, isn't it? That is the foundation. That is the beginning. That is the end of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. And that He and He alone is worthy of all of our honor, all of our obedience, all of our worship, all of our praise, all of our submission. And that because He is king, He sits enthroned in heaven, and He puts up kings, and He puts down kings. He ordains authority, and He takes people out of authority. All authority comes from Him. And so he, in Him we move and we live, and we have our being, and He has the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is He king? Yep. Was Paul teaching that He was king? Yes but not in the sense that they were saying. You see, Paul wasn't advocating an overthrow of Rome and to establish some sort of theocracy and to enthrone Jesus. It's not what Paul was advancing. That's not what Paul meant. That's not the Gospel. And friends, here's the paradox in which you and I live. On the one hand, we are to be model, exemplary citizens of our earthly kingdom. We are to be submissive even to ungodly and wicked governments as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and Paul says in Romans chapter 13. We are to submit to our authorities. We are to pray for them. We are to love them. We are to respect them. We are to honor them. And we are to seek their good. But at the same time, we're not to be blindly following any kind of party or ideology or any person because as Christ's loyal subjects all of our honor, all of our adoration, all of our praise goes to Him and Him alone. Well, if you can proclaim no other king but Caesar, that puts Paul in a pretty awkward position with Rome, doesn't it? Because he has to proclaim the sovereignty and the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Because that is the Gospel. He rules. He died he was buried, he rose again, he has ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And someday every tongue, every knee will bow and confess to him, Thou art Lord. And you got to teach people that. So they were right. He is proclaiming another king, Jesus, but he wasn't doing so to try and install him as king. And so they twist that slander and they catch the Apostle Paul there. The kingship of Christ or the kingdom of Christ must have been something that was sort of the topic of the day in Thessalonica. As you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, in the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, you will notice that the coming of Christ or the rapture are mentioned in all five chapters. In 2 Thessalonians, the coming of the Lord is mentioned in two out of the three chapters. And the third chapter, which doesn't mention the coming of the Lord, deals with the problem that the church was having because they misunderstood the coming of the Lord. So this obviously was a topic that was hot for discussion in Thessalonica. And although Paul twice mentions the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God in the Thessalonian epistles, he never mentions Jesus as king. Why is that? Well, you want to avoid being misunderstood, don't you? And understanding how they twisted his words in Thessalonica, he avoids that subject, mentions the kingdom but he never comes out and explicitly says that Jesus is the king. He's not going to give any fodder to the enemies of the church in order to do him or them wrong. And so they slandered him. The source was their jealousy. They got some wicked men. They brought him from the marketplace, caused this riot, and brought all of these false accusations against Paul and against Silas. And they weren't there. And it seemed to have worked. It seemed to have worked. Look at verse 8. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. Verse 9, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Now this pledge that they received is a financial pledge. It would work similar to how bail works in our society, only reverse. Bail in our society is meant to keep somebody in the city close by. This pledge was meant to keep somebody out of the city far away. So they receive a pledge, some sort of a financial obligation that Jason puts up for them, and that pledge means that if, there, if Paul stays in the city or if there is another riot, that Jason would end up forfeiting his money and probably being imprisoned or punished or both. So they get a pledge from Jason. We want your word that this man and his traveling companions will be out of town. And they get the money. And if that doesn't happen, Jason forfeits the money and he gets suffered. And so the Apostle Paul has to leave, which is verse 10. By night, they left and they went to Berea. They had to leave. Now this resulted in a couple things. First of all, you have this brand new church, this young group of believers who's suffering affliction. And the suffering did not stop when Paul left town. You understand that? It continued on. But now it's not directed at Paul and Silas, it's directed at the entire church that they started. This caused Paul great concern, because he says in the first epistle, this concerned us. We were so concerned for your safety and because of your affliction and because of your suffering that I sent Timothy to see how you're doing. And Timothy went there and he came back with a glowing report to the Apostle Paul. These guys are excelling in everything. It's incredible. Their faith is increasing. The word of them is spreading throughout the entire region. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. They love each other. There are a few little things that Paul corrected, but an exemplary church. But Paul was concerned because they were suffering. And listen, the Apostle Paul wanted to go back to Thessalonica because if he could be in Thessalonica, it would mean that he could suffer in their place. Just like he did in Philippi. Why did Paul want to go back to Thessalonica? Because they're really after him. And since he can't be there, then the church is suffering and that concerned him. Paul didn't take that sitting down. Here's how Paul viewed being ejected from Thessalonica. He viewed it as a victory for Satan. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes to them, Brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. What's he talking about? The pledge. Why couldn't he return to Thessalonica? If he returned to Thessalonica, it meant bad news for Jason and the church. Paul says, we've wanted to come to you. More than once, I wanted to come. Why? Because they were suffering Paul wanted to be there not only to encourage them, but to suffer for them and with them. And we wanted to come, but we couldn't. Satan hindered us. and had a victory. We were kept from Thessalonica by the pledge. He couldn't return. It meant that Jason would suffer. meant that the church would suffer. And so Paul had to stay away. And he didn't like that at all. Friends, here's what we learn from the church in Thessalonica. Although Satan may gain an occasional victory now and again, God still advances the war and wins the war. Even Satan's victories work out for our good. Without Paul being ejected from Thessalonica, we probably likely wouldn't have 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and all of the teaching that it involves. We wouldn't have that if Paul hadn't been kicked out. If we didn't have that, it worked out for the good of the church, didn't it? Do you and I believe that God works all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? Including things that from our perspective look out to be defeats. Because even when we gain a defeat, it actually advances our cause. Because being kicked out of Thessalonica did two things. It made the church vibrant, strong, healthy, and pure. And the second thing that it did is it pushed Paul on to the next city where guess what? He planted another church. Just continues to advance, doesn't it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the goodness of Your Word and the goodness of Your grace to us. We thank You, Father, that even in the midst of what we view to be defeats, that You continue to advance Your kingdom and Your cause and that You are glorified even in our suffering and our affliction. We thank You, Father, for the encouragement that this Word is and we thank You for the important lesson that we learn from the church at Thessalonica and that is that we can be under affliction and under suffering and at the same time, Father, that has a way of purifying us individually and corporately and advancing Your cause and Your kingdom. We thank You, Lord, that there is coming a day when Christ will come back and put every enemy under His feet, the last enemy being death. And we look forward to that with great expectation and joy. It is our hope. It is our comfort. And we love You in spite of all that we have to endure here before we get that great glory and that great joy. In Jesus' name, Amen.